The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So good morning, everyone. And um, uh, one piece of an, kind of announcement that I have to make is that um, those of you who don't know that uh, on uh, this last week we took possession of this property in Scotts Valley that will be our retreat center. And uh, I think on Tuesday, our president, Kim Allen, went and signed for it at the title company. And uh, Wednesday, we got the keys. And Thursday, a group of us went down there, uh, for some of us, the first time to see it since we owned it. So I went down and I was one of the first people. We have have Sangha members now who are caretaking it for a couple of months, living there, this nursing home that we bought that will be a retreat center. And so they were there, and so I was one of the first people to come there on Thursday morning. And uh, I was so happy and delighted. It was so much better than I realized. (laughs) (laughs) We thought it was a good deal. We thought it was a good good property for retreats and a nice nice feeling. Otherwise, we wouldn't have bought it. But when I got there, I guess, you know, all the, all the, it was kind of a retirement nursing home place, and so everything had been cleared out, and it was kind of empty and quiet, and, and you, I got a sense much more strongly how it could be a silent retreat center, and it was just a, such a wonderful place for it. And uh, so we took care of some of the things we had to take care of that first day, and then um, Kim Laughlin made a, a lunch for us, and we had this long table in the dining room, and we had our first meal there. And... Um, 14 of us. And it was such a pleasure to be there. So um, I want to share the good news and share a little bit of my happiness and what a great thing we're doing down there. And um, so hopefully there'll be open house in July. Some of you might want to come down and see the photographs that we have here on the wall. You know, are, are fine photographs, but they don't really capture the, how special the place feels. So if you go down there, you'll probably feel, feel that. So I guess I haven't been here for a long time on a Sunday, so it's nice to be back. Um, and uh, it was kind of poor planning because I had said in the beginning of the last year that I would uh, give a series of talks on the ten perfections, the ten paramis, on the Sunday after I did the Friday Dharma practice days on the particular quality. And, um, and so the, on Fridays, last Friday, we did equanimity, the last of the ten, but I haven't done, I'm three behind <laughs> on Sundays. So we're still back in the, uh, the eighth, eighth of these, which is resolve. So um, today I'm going to talk about resolve and probably for the next two uh, Sundays I'll catch up on these so I can finish the series of talks. So these are a series of talks on what's called the paramis or the perfections. And these are very uh, useful, so I think it's a very useful list for a number of reasons. One is that it's a useful list to try to understand what it looks like to mature in Buddhist practice and uh, to mature spiritually. You know, if you ask someone, what is spiritual maturity? I ask yourself, you know, you know, you get an interesting answer perhaps. You might even try that, go around to different people you know who weren't here today and uh, ask them, what, what do you... How would you know if someone was spiritually mature? And to see what they would say. It's be very, get very interesting answers, different perspectives on the topic. Um, and, but I like the, I like the expressions, you know, spiritual maturity, because 
in, uh, it's a corrective to a common Buddhist tendency among Buddhist practitioners to focus on enlightenment or awakening as kind of the be-all and end-all, kind of this, this kind of, kind of all-or-nothing kind of experience. Either you have it or you don't have it. And it's all about getting to that, that one particular you know, illumination, that particular transformation, and then you're happy ever after. And like, or you get the badge, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, you have the assurance that you're... You, and it makes some sense. I mean, there, is, there are very powerful experiences to be had in practice, and they're very meaningful for people to have them. Um, and, um, and that they provide a certain assurance that you're, the path is good, that uh, the practice is true. And I think some of the assurance of knowing... If people want to be assured. People want to know that... have certainty about what they're doing. And so having a definitive experience and a definitive status, I'm one of the enlightened ones, then you know you're good, right? Uh, then, uh, you know, it kind of gives you certain certainty. The word maturity is much more fuzzy. Uh, generally, maturity is like a fruit that slowly matures. Um, and um, it's something that happens gradually as opposed to something that happens definitively, you know, one, you know, one single experience. And I think that... Um, uh, there's, there's uh, people who have very strong kind of experiences, transformative realization kind of experiences in Buddhism. Sometimes they, they, they think that they're, they qualify for enlightenment and um, they're not very mature afterwards. <laughs> they, uh, they have some understanding and some change, but they don't, they're not a kind of broadly mature person. And there are people who have broad matu- maturity, even spiritual maturity, who maybe haven't had some kind of clear, transformative experience. Uh, and there's people who've had both. Um, but I think overall, I, I think I prefer to focus on, uh, or emphasize the idea of maturation, slowly mature over time. And as you mature, there can be moments where there are very significant momentary experiences that are powerful. But the overall thrust is the maturation, the growth, the gradual development that is in, in line with the way human beings tend to develop over time in childhood. You know, childhood development is a developmental process. We slowly mature over time. And the human development doesn't stop when we're 18 or 21. Uh, but the maturation of human beings continues throughout a lifetime. And you can feel how someone in their 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, how they develop, they become more mature, uh, more developed, uh, richer in some ways in their, in their personality. So these ten perfections can be seen as aspects of Buddhist maturation process when you practice. So we mature in our capacity for generosity. It's one of the cornerstones of Buddhist spiritual development is to cultivate a generous spirit, a generous attitude to this world and to others. And so one of the qualities of a mature Buddhist practitioner is that of uh, being generous. The second quality of maturation is that of ethical integrity. Um, there's no real maturation in Buddhism without a, a steady growth in your ethical sensitivity and ethical behavior. Um, the next is a maturation is a capacity to let go. And um, it's something we all need to learn as we develop. Um, it's un- very, rather unfortunate that my children haven't learned it yet. Uh, <laughs> but they will. <laughs> and I'm quite confident. <laughs> Life will kind of force it on them. 
And uh, so then, um, but you know, we, we, everyone to mature, you know, human beings to mature in kind of ordinary ideas of maturation has to learn, have to learn how, how to let go of things that, you know, are appropriate to let go of at the right time. And without that, uh, there's a lot of suffering. So the, this third quality is usually defined as renunciation. The fourth is, um, is what? Renunciation, and then after that is um, wisdom. So the maturation of wisdom. So a greater understanding, greater capacity to understand, to see what's going on. Um, and so that also tends to grow somewhat, you know, it's, it's a, wisdom does, doesn't tend to come kind of in this, by reading a single book or a definitive experience, but it comes over time in maturation and experience. And then there's uh, the maturation of our ability to make effort, to apply energy, to be engaged in our life. And uh, some people I know uh, are quite shy. And I know people who have been, you know, so shy in public, spe- public areas, they can hardly speak, they go silent. But as they grow and develop in their life, they mature, uh, their fear, their inhibition is not so strong. And they can apply effort in areas in their life before they were inhibited or closed down or something. And so the, the ability to make effort, and sometimes the ability to make effort in things which maybe are uncomfortable to do, is a sign of maturation. Things are necessary to do, but uncomfortable. And then because effort is part of life, engagement and doing things, it's really important to develop patience. So patience is a quality of maturation. Um, and um, a very important quality in Buddhism is the quality of truthfulness. And so it's said that people mature in their capacity and commitment to truthfulness, their understanding of how to see what's true and live by it. Then there is uh, the topic for today, which is resolve. Uh, Aditana is the Pali word, but the capacity to uh, be resolved on something. Sometimes it's translated as determination. And this is a beautiful quality to have. And it's partly beautiful because for many people, there's a gap between what they wish and what they do. A gap between their intention, and between their aspiration and their follow-through on that intention. A gap between intention and action. And resolve is what um, bridges that gap. So, or translates intention into action, into doing something, into effort. And resolve is important because <clears throat> even when you, <clears throat> when, you, when you act, when you engage in something, there can be a lot of forces that uh, interfere that, uh, in our follow-through. Uh, we can get discouraged, there can be um, obstacles to, f- to succeeding. All kinds of things can happen. We can get lazy. All kinds of things can happen that, so we don't want to follow through. And, um, and so resolve is what keeps us on the course, keeps us steady uh, through the, the challenges and through the easy times. just keeps going. And uh, for most people, I think there is no Buddhist practice without some resolve because Buddhist practice is not that easy uh, to do it in a committed way. <clears throat> many people, probably for many of you as well, uh, who are living here as householders and lay lives, even even having the reg- the commitment to meditating every day, um, can be a challenge to do, and so that takes commitment, resolve, determination. That in all the ups and downs of daily life, all the demands, that you you hold steady, and to the commitment to sit and meditate, if that's your your commitment or your intention. So it takes resolve. Um, even uh, follow, even when you can meditate, 
uh, hanging in there and following through <coughs> with meditation practice itself takes steady uh, sense of purpose, holding the course. For example, in my life, in my, my, my mind, I don't think of myself as someone who has much innate capacity for concentration. It's not my strong suit, even though I've done this for now for my adult life. But um, what, I ha- what I think of what, what I'm strong in is my cap- is capacity for resolve. And so I made up for it, my lack of con- capacity for concentration by being resolved. And the resolve, the steadiness, the keeping to it, um, is, you know, carries along and the concentration then follows in the wake of that. <clears throat> and I have been quite concentrated at times uh, because of the resolve to kind of hold the course in what I'm doing. I like the word resolve, the English word resolve, <clears throat> because it comes from the Latin word, that the uh, same Latin root as to dissolve, or solution, uh, to solve. And uh, it, means, it kind of means in Latin to uh, dissolve something or make something soluble, or like salt, you would dissolve it into... Or it also apparently means in Latin to untie, to untie something. And so to be resolved, that way has a feeling of kind of easing up on something or freeing of something, as opposed to determination, which is also a beautiful word perhaps, but determination in my mind, you know, I'm determined to do something, there's a kind of feeling of tightening up or being kind of solid or hard. Uh, Whereas resolved, with this English, with this Latin root, maybe has this suggests this freeing. <clears throat> because in Buddhism, the, the goal of Buddhist practice is freedom. It's untying our attachments, untying the way we're entangled with our world and ourselves. And there it takes a lot of commitment and a lot of resolve to really uh, look and face ourselves, face the places where we're entangled and attached, and be want to, and to want to, uh, uh, untie the places we're all tied up. Uh, the, con- the word that's contrast to resolve uh, is striving. And generally in our Buddhist circles, we don't like the word striving. And so I looked it up in the, because of this you know, Latin roots of it. And it turns out the wor- uh, word striving is uh, related to the word strife. And it means it has the meaning of to quarrel or to contend with things. And so maybe that's why we don't like to strive in Buddhism. There's no striving in Buddhism, just a lot of resolve. And um, we, we, we are resolved and determined and committed. We work really hard at being relaxed. That's a, that's a worthwhile thing to, be, to, strive for, to strive for, to. It's a worthwhile thing. Though sometimes the word stri- strive, in the sense that the root means to struggle, is appropriate. Because sometimes uh, the maturation process, sometimes the path of practice, requires a lot of struggle. And if you shied away from struggle, you wouldn't really um, uh, find your way through some of the deepest attachments and fears that um, uh, we're kind of contending with in this life of ours. Uh, some people have tremendous challenges because they do things, they live way, they do things, they act in ways that cause a lot of harm to themselves and to their family and to other people. And <clears throat> it's not easy for them to to let go of those strong forces within them. And it becomes a struggling match with themselves in order to find a way to move through it. So if Buddhist practice is only said to be about, you know, accepting things and relaxing and being present with how things are, um, you know, 
I'm, you know, let's be present for how thi- let's be be present for how things are. I'll be present with my alcoholic addiction. Give me another bottle. Now, that's not what we're talking about. And sometimes with addiction and all kinds of things, you need, you know, sometimes it's a real struggle, and um, so much so that uh, I think it's appropriate to break out in a sweat when you engage in trying to be truthful and honest and present uh, and letting go. So the word resolve also has that quality at sometimes it takes a lot of effort and energy, a lot of commit- commitment. But it also has a side of you know, always be re- remembering in Buddhism that the goal is to find our way to a life <clears throat> where we can be at ease, where we can be free, where there can be, the heart can be at peace, the heart can be settled on itself, the heart can be at home in itself. And um, the heart can be uh, settled in some deep way. And so sometimes that takes a lot of effort, sometimes it takes a lot of letting go, sometimes it takes a lot of truthfulness, and sometimes you know, it takes a lot of resolve. This is, this is the important thing to do. And one of the, I think, important pieces of wisdom that we could have around resolve is that some things are really worthwhile being resolved to pursue. And some things are not resolved, uh, worthwhile to pursue. Uh, I found that uh, it was worthwhile for me to be very resolved to go off and sit long retreats. I was very resolved on trying to live as ethically as I can. Um, these things were worthwhile to do, even when they were a struggle to do. And, uh, f- and so, you know, I've done all kinds of things in my life uh, in Buddhist practice uh, that required um, a lot of um, you know, strong commitment, sometimes against the messages I got from my society and my family around me that you, know, you weren't supposed to do certain things. You were supposed to pursue certain careers and certain options and certain things. And that wasn't what I was resolved on. It wasn't, worth, it wasn't what I was going to have my life based on. And so I made resolves and dedications, devotions in my life to pursue a different path that uh, then was conventionally acceptable, even. And, uh, you know, when I was a... And now I find it kind of, kind of a little bit bizarre that I should basically be the minister in a middle-class urban church. <laughs> because, you know, when I started Buddhist practice, there was, this wasn't an option. There wasn't a, this wasn't a career option. <laughs> the career option, was, the option that I knew was basically be a monk, <clears throat> be a renunciant. And um, so here we are, find ourselves here. So um, some things are worth pursuing, some things are resolved for. And so the, the Buddha said that there were, he listed four things that were particularly useful to be resolved about. So this is an interesting list. It's particularly useful to be resolved to be truthful. And I would say that there's no Buddhist practice without truthfulness. Because, you know, mindfulness is dependent on being truthful. Mindfulness is a kind of truth-telling to yourself being present and truthful for what is here and now. So there's no Buddhism, there's no matu- I would say there's no human maturation without truthfulness. So to be resolved on being truthful. Some of you might be thinking, of course, I'm, I'm truthful all the time. But as people get more sensitive in mindfulness practice, we realize that often there's subtle ways in which we're kind of not quite on the spot with the truthfulness. We're kind of a little bit 
white lies or a little bit off, sometimes quite off with exaggeration and things. Um, so to be committed to truthfulness is very important. The second uh, resolve that's, uh, is the resolve for wisdom. And I understand wisdom here not to be knowledge, but rather the resolve to investigate and, and study what's going on here in this life of ours, to look more deeply, to try to understand more, better what's happening. Sometimes reading can help, studying can help, talking to friends can help. Um, but to really kind of engage in this process of questioning, what is really going on here? What's going on with me? What's going on in this relationship? What's going on when I engage in my work? What's really happening here? Not the surface, I'm just making money. What's really going on? What's really be happening? What am, I, what am I living out? What am I trying to do? What's the wise thing to do here as opposed to the convenient thing? So the, the, uh, the resolve for wisdom. The third resolve is uh, the resolve for generosity. As I said earlier, it's really the cornerstone of Buddhist spiritual maturation. <clears throat> so to have some resolve to become a more generous person. That uh, doesn't mean that you have to give away your, your, all your wealth and your home and your spouse. But it means that you, um, that you, you look upon others and look upon the world with a generous attitude. And maybe what you give is your smile. Maybe you could give is a little bit of time. Maybe you stop and talk to someone on the street who's a stranger rather than passing them by. And that's your expression of generosity. But to look for, to resolve on developing generosities considered very important. And the fourth resolve <clears throat> is to be resolved on peace. Uh, to understand that liberation, freedom, maturation, peace all come together. They kind of co-join to one thing. And that uh, to be peaceful is really helpful for the development of this maturation process. Partly because as we become more peaceful, it makes space and room in the mind and the heart for these other qualities to develop. It allows us to be more sensitive, to see more clearly, to develop a sensitivity that can't be there if we're not peaceful, if we're busy and frantic and uptight, if we're greedy and hateful and spiteful or afraid. And so to cultivate peace allows the heart, it's kind of like tilling or preparing the, the field so something else beautiful can happen. And one of those beautiful things is further peace. And one of the most beautiful qualities to experience <clears throat> is the a settled, peaceful, calm uh, heart. Um, it's uh, one of the most satisfying things that a human being can experience. And so to have some resolve on peace if the word peace is too big, <clears throat> then a substitute word is ease, to be resolved on ease. How can I be more at ease in this situation? It can be as simple as looking at your posture in your body. Am I sitting or standing in a way that is easeful? Or am I tight and tense right now, standing in line in the supermarket? Am I at ease standing here? Or is my body expressing impatience? And then, you know, come back to the place of ease. What happens? And what happens if you are easeful as an act of generosity to other people? If, you, if you're at ease, then you help other people become at ease. If you're at ease, it's easier to have wisdom and see what's going on. If you're at ease, it's easier to be truthful, to want to be truthful. So to cultivate ease. And one of the great ways of cultivating ease, one of the great ways of cultivating wisdom, one of the ways of cultivating uh, truthfulness, and perhaps generosity, 
is to be mindful of what takes you away from your ease. What is it that, what causes you to lose your ease? So rather than being upset with yourself because you can't be peaceful enough, the path is found, if you're not peaceful, look at what is it that goes on for you, that you're, why you're not peaceful. What is the movements of your mind? What is the thoughts? What are the emotions? What's the beliefs behind the agitation, the drivenness, the, the fragmentation that goes on in your mind that keeps you from being peaceful and at ease? <clears throat> to study that, to look at that, to become clear about what that is, to be patient with it, uh, to be generous with yourself around your lack, your inability to be peaceful, to be generous or kind to yourself and gracious to yourself for the way in which you get caught up in the way that you get, um, you know, not the best qualities of human kind are being expressed in you at the current moment. <laughs> it happens to some of us sometimes. So to be generous to that and to study it, to be present. So the resolve is the eighth of these ten paramis. And what makes the resolve a parami, a perfection, is, is not just because you're resolved on something, but because the resolve is clearly connected to cultivating greater liberation and greater compassion. They're expressions of the path of liberation and expressions of the path of liberation, of, of compassion. That uh, somehow the parami, the perfection of resolve, is the resolve that's needed for us to become liberated, to become free from the entanglements and being stuck and being afraid. And it's, it's, uh, end resolve is connected to our resolve to live a life that's of service, that's caring for the uh, others and the world around us, that it's expression of compassion. So in that sense, this quality of resolve is very beautiful, I think. It's a beautiful thing. And so I hope that you will consider this coming week, um, this quality of resolve. And how is it, what, in what areas of your life would it be beneficial for you to be more resolved, to be more committed, to be more, to be more courageous, to be more, uh, to hold the course steady, to have the long-term view. Partly, when I think of resolve, I think of a long-term view. Uh, you know, it's not, Buddhist, the maturation process is not about instant gratification. It's about having a long-term view about how you're going to be in 10 years or 20 years, five years. Um, not how you're going to, you know, go to the next retreat and come back and have all your problems solved and, and have the enlightenment badge. But, you know, hold the course steady. You're in it for the long term. And how you're going to now engage in a process of steady, ongoing maturation. And when the maturation is strong enough, when the maturation is mature enough, <clears throat> you'll experience the fruit of that. And that's what, uh, in the traditionally Buddhism, um, the experience of awakening or enlightenment is often called the fruit. So may you ripen. <laughs> So we have about 15 minutes. If any of you have any comments or questions about this or anything else you'd like to ask. Yes, Arthur. So lots of times um, I um, 
Fine, by my, I look at this sense of ease. I long for ease in my life. And um, what I find is this ease. And um, when I look at what, what the cause is, I find I'm confused. It's not one cause, or it, it's a whole. Um, there's many things mixed together. Yes. And I guess the, the resolve is to uh, figure out how to unwind um, that, that tapestry. That sounds good. Though you might start by being at ease about being confused. I'm, ser- I'm serious about that. So, so, so sometimes we, we, we start probing too quickly, thinking that there's a solution. If I dig into it, I'll find you know, what's going on. And sometimes it's uh, better to kind of start at the widest possible picture. Step back from your whole life and your, everything going on. And what's the widest kind of way in which you can hold it and see it? And then so that you can hold it with ease. And so if you, know, if you have all these threads that are combining to form this big ball of confusion, um, you know, and if you're upset about that and you go in there to try to unravel the ball, you just probably get more and more upset. But if you step back and just see the ball and, and, and say, take a deep breath and, ah, there it is, look at that. Here's confusion. And then, then we get a little curious. What does confusion feel like? And how am I relating to confusion? Can I, am I afraid of confusion? Am I upset with it? Am I judging myself for being confused? Am I comparing myself with my neighbor who's never confused? Um, you know, wh- how, how do I relate to confusion? And, and, then, and then relax. And just, just see if you can be relaxed by being a confused person. That's the first step. And then once you have that, then you can maybe go look more closely and see some of the different threads and, and, and find a way to work with those. Make sense? Yes, Helen. Well, sometimes English translations use the word strive because, you know, we're so quick to use words like that. I have to go back and look at the Pali. He didn't speak English. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, an alternative translation to his last Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember. I should know that. It's such an important uh, sentence. Uh, But I don't remember. Offhand, I don't remember. But uh, there are, are, uh, you know, lots of words in Buddhism for being resolved, making strong effort. The Buddha said, it was very clear, he said, you should make strong effort for your liberation at various places. And, uh, you know, for the Buddha, the Buddhist practice was not for the lazy. It was, you know, it requires engagement, you know. Uh, it's not, um, Buddhist, uh, Buddhist practice is not wishful thinking. Or say it a little differently, kind of a little thing I like to say, is that, you know, a mindfulness practice doesn't work at all, unless you do it. <laughs> so, you know, so making strong effort. struggle with my growing awareness of truthfulness. I'm on that edge of where's the balance between truthfulness and privacy? Do you know what I mean? 
privacy? Privacy. How much do I need to, how transparent do I need to be? And in what cases and that sort of thing. I got, do not lie. Uh-huh. Uh, not as simple as it sounds. But, but beyond that, what is, where is the, where's the right point for truthfulness? Yeah, yeah. So, so someone's wearing a beautiful purple dress. They put. A, they spend a lot of effort making or buying, and and you say, you know, I'm going to be truthful with you. I don't like purple dresses. I think they're ugly. You know, it's truthful. If that's what you feel. But what's the purpose of that truthfulness? The um, the uh, usually for speech, the Buddha gave th- four different criteria for deciding what to say. Truthfulness is one of them. The other uh, is, is it uh, kind, what you're going to say? And a really important one, is it beneficial? Does it, does it benefit anyone to say, does it, so is it necessary really to say, is it beneficial? And the fourth is, is, is it timely? And so sometimes it can be beneficial to say it, it could be uh, kind and it can be truthful, but it's not the right time. Well, my question is about self-revealing. You know, people will make assumptions about me and let them just have those assumptions and say nothing. Or I can reveal more. And I, I'm very mixed about that whole thing. That's what I was mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a good thing to look at more. <laughs> See, my job's easy. Mindfulness teacher, just go just... <laughs> it's your job to go look. <laughs> to do the work. The... Um, it's a good question. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's not an easy answer for this because there's so many different circumstances, so complex the interdynamics of what's going on. So you have to really look at every situation and see what's the wise thing to do. Sometimes you're better off just not saying anything and sometimes you're better off correcting them and say it's not what you think. And sometimes it's better to wait for the right time to do that. Uh, maybe this is not the right time. Uh, it's never okay to lie to oneself. One should always be truthful to oneself. But when we share that truthfulness to others, um, you know, it has to do with those four criteria. So when is it, benef- is it beneficial to, someone has the wrong impression of you, is it bene- does it benefit the situation or you or the other person to correct them, say, I'm actually, this is actually not the case. Um, and if it doesn't benefit anyone to do it, then perhaps it's not necessary and just let it be, maybe. Thank you. So here in the front, we have a, other mic here. Um, one of the, the things I'm putting more effort in my practice is generosity. In the areas where I feel my body clean, clenching or being stressed. And I have identified two areas where when I think about generosity or when I think about giving, I just do this. And one is giving anonymously. And the, the reason why is, I, I think it's, it's, it's been hard sometimes to give anonymous, anonymously. Um, you know, looking for the time where no one is looking or, or you know, no one will notice or just how can I maybe, you know, in terms of giving, giving gifts or, or um, advocating anonymously, but how can I advocate it anonymously? 
or um, so you so you, so when you look when you're looking at opportunities to give anonymously, you you cringe, you cling, you yeah. tighten up. Yeah. Well, like for example, giving giving a donation or. Um, you know, if I send it by the mail, my name is there. Yeah. Or, or um, if I'm at a retreat, okay, let me just wait for no one to look and so to see what is the effect of giving without not caring about what people will think. But you do care. So you're saying that if you do it that way, it's something dissatisfying inside of you. You kind of it's hard for you to do. You prefer to be seen. Is 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 hard? It's, it's hard not to be noticed. It's hard not to be... For you, when you're not noticed, it's hard for you. You'd rather be noticed. No, no. <laughs> no, it's... It's, um, har- it's hard to find the opportunity to do it without being noticed. It's exactly. Because there's always people around. Yeah. And if you send in a donation, your name is there. Yeah, or, you know, I just can send cash, or, or maybe I just can put a fruit at the desk of someone. Uh-huh. Um, at the point where they're not noticing, or and so I, I just found it funny, and at the same time, oh, this is more difficult than what I thought. Um, so I was like, okay, how can I be at ease? And do I really care that much about not being noticed or not receive credit? So I thought, well, okay, forget it. This, if they notice me, that's fine. Just put it there. Uh-huh. Um, because the end result is not as um, well. I, I don't. I don't feel peaceful doing it that way. For maybe other reasons of you know not gratification. And the other one is advocating, or or which I think that is some way of. I see it like a way of generosity, like um, by you know referring in a positive way about something or someone or uh, but and not receiving the credit for that if something happens um, so I just I'm just acknowledging that you know there's like all that rambling beautiful it's great it's great that you're practicing generosity and, and seeing these things come up and these challenges come up part of the function of the practice of generosity is to discover the challenges, discover the places we hold and the complications that come up. Um, you, you know, it, it's, 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 one, it's one thing to be spontaneously generous and just give and it's, all, it's very nice and you're happy to be generous and everyone's happy and everyone is happily ever, ever after. That would be good. But it's another thing to take on generosity as a practice to understand oneself better and understand our relationships with other people better and to see what gets stirred up in the process. And I think that's one of the great, great values of the practice of generosity, see what gets stirred up, see where we're afraid, see what self-image we're operating under, what goes on with self-image and stuff uh, around giving. And do we give just really freely or do we really expect to be seen and to be kind of, you know, be approved of by other people or have our status go up a little bit? Um, or are we afraid, you know, of what it means to be generous, that people will somehow look upon us unfavorably for being generous or think of us being selfish. One of the interesting aspects of generosity in Burma when I was there, that for many of the Westerners found kind of, kind of a little uncomfortable, was um, many of the Westerners would often, you know, the, the custom in monasteries and meditation centers in Burma was people would make donations for the meals, give money so the monastery can go out and buy food to, to buy the meals for the day. 
And, but the, the custom in the monastery was on a big blackboard in the dining room. They would put, write who had donated the money that day for the meal. <laughs> and the Westerners found this really strange. They felt like that somehow that it sullied their generosity or it kind of, their own generosity was somehow implied. Maybe they were looking for credit or looking for, it was kind of egotistical to go donate and then have your, your name up there on the blackboard. So, it was, so somehow, something about the Western conditioning made it hard for some people, the Westerners, to, whereas the Burmese seemed to, that was just part of the custom. And I think it allowed everyone else to celebrate and feel joy in the act of generosity that someone had made. Okay, so may you dissolve appropriately with your resolve. (laughs) Thank you.